This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find the best catering in Sydney as we're starting to open up from COVID-19. The incredible guys who've been doing it really tough, Bella Catering, uh, are still there. They're still humming along. Get involved. If you now are starting to allow to have a lot of people at your house, why not have it catered? Delicious food, delicious Greek-made food, delicious Italian food, all sorts of cuisine, unbelievable people. Glenn and Maria, we love them. And uh, they've been so great to their great cohort of folk that they work with. And uh, we've just been really proud that they've been uh, uh, to, to give them a shout out and as the naming sponsor of this show. Thank you so much for listening to all the President's Minutes. Thank you so much for supporting Bella Catering. It's bellacatering.com.au. Now, as always, let's do this thing. I want to thank you for letting me be on this, uh, be part of this conversation. Let me be clear. Uh, the president just used a Bible, the most sacred text of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and one of the churches of my diocese, without permission, as a backdrop for a message antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and everything that our churches stand for. And to do so, as you just said, he sanctioned the use of tear gas by police officers in riot gear to clear the churchyard. I am outraged. The president did not pray when he came to St. John's, nor, as you just articulated, did he acknowledge the agony of our country right now, and in particular that of the people of color in our nation, who wonder if anyone ever, anyone in, in, in public power will ever acknowledge their sacred words, and who are rightfully demanding an end to 400 years of systemic racism and white supremacy in our country. And I just want the world to know that we in the Diocese of Washington, following Jesus and his way of love, do not, we distance ourselves from the, from the incendiary language of this president. Uh, we follow someone who lived a life of nonviolence and sacrificial love. We align ourselves with those seeking justice for the death of George Floyd and countless others through the sacred act of peaceful protest. And I, <laughs> I just can't believe what my eyes have seen tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a friend, um, an, an editor and a writer that I really admire, and uh, the founder, the engine, the perpetual movement machine inside Vague Visages, also senior writer at Screen Rant, um, and a contributor to, you know, I think... If you can be in the peer group of RogerEbert.com or Ebert Voices, as they call themselves occasionally, um, I, I think that is a very special uh, cohort to be a member of. Um, but he's just a great film mind, and uh, he continues, for whatever reason, to allow me to write for his drastically awesome publication turned film social media site, Vague Visages. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure again to chat to my friend, QV Haug. QV, how are you, my friend? Blake, Blake, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I like to, I like to envision like a, all the president's <laughs> minutes, like a vision board or like a, an obsessional, <laughs> and I got my name up there with all these great guests. It, it's really an honor. Thank you so much. That's that. You know, you talk about 
that's like when people see the garage open in True Detective and you see <laughs> Rust and Cole, played by Matthew McConaughey, walk in and there's just this creepy corkboard that has things like Yellow King and Carcosa and pictures and Woody Harrelson as the audience, I feel, in that moment is like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. He's lost it. That's kind of my dream. Like, I, I will look in that garage of a wall of, like, chaos and inspiration and I'm like – and following leads and I'm just like, holy dooly. This is, this is, these are my kindred spirits. You know, Blake, it's the same for me with – here in my one bedroom in Fargo running, running my site. It's just like a beautiful chaos. You know, it's <laughs> somehow it, it, it comes together in the end. And I, uh, I admire what you do. So thanks again. You're welcome, my friend. And uh, look, congratulations for folks. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't stumbled upon my work in Vague Visages, um, you should just go check out the site. Uh, it is now a subscription site, but it really does, for exceptionally reasonable prices, have some of the best voices uh, in in really in film criticism around the world that are contributing, and it's a growing entity. and And right now, more than ever, um, you know, for the for the small couple of bucks that you can subscribe to the mag, uh, it's uh, it's it's giving you a lot of bang for your buck including some of the great guests who have actually been on this show contribute to Vague Visages as well, which is cool. And occasionally I get to come on there and talk about the apocalypse or mental health in movies and uh, do some other cool stuff. So that's very fun for me. Yeah, I'd love to have you more on the site in the future. You know, I just started the subscription on May 5th. was actually my 40th birthday. Well, and happy I've been running- hey, happy birthday. May 1st <laughs> was my 35th birthday. So we are Torians oh. together. Hey, happy birthday, boy! Uh, happy belated birthday to you, I'm, my I'm friend. A, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit old. I feel 35. <laughs> I feel maybe 30. But, uh, you know, I've been running Vogue from home for the last five since I was about 35, 34, and on May on May 5th, my birthday, we we I kicked off the subscription, and so far it's been a good good start. And moving forward. You know, I think we're in a good spot right now where we can progressively build a budget, pay the writers more, and just keep the site moving forward and hopefully work with more people like yourself. So I'm, I'm excited. Exciting times. And I'm and, and it's awesome. You know, I'm really lucky. I know kind of a couple of like, uh, you know, I know a couple of people who run publications, yourself and Garth Franklin, pretty well, and uh, and I'm always amazed by your boundless fervor and your capacity to just have output, coordinate things. It's pretty incredible. So it's really cool to have you on. And uh, if you, you know, just look up QV. You can find him on Twitter at QV Haug. We, we don't usually talk at that at the top of the show, but if you're listening, you want to check out the man I'm talking to whilst we're getting into this episode. That's where you can find him. Um, in amongst all the other links that you'll have off to his work. But right now, you and I are staring at Robert Redford right right on the press like right on the precipice. He, he's right there. He's right here. He's in, right there. In a split diopter he's- shot. He is staring down at a phone uh-huh. and he's staring daggers at a telephone in, in this the fifty first minute. It is a great it's kind of I think people Sometimes, and and I know that I do it, like when I remember movies that I'm less familiar with, you imagine these two wonderful, epic conversations that happen with Redford 
uh, going, following down rabbit holes of leads and people. Um, and I think in your imagination, a lot of the time you merge them together. So there's the early conversation where he's just drumming up bits and pieces of information. And then there's this sort of seminal one that just is a chaotic, beautiful conversation where it's got McGregor and Dahlberg and the weird and wonderful roller coaster that is the conversation as it's unfolding. And then this beautiful sort of chaos and debris of the newsroom, the rest of the chaos that's going on around him that just couldn't care less what he's doing. But all the drama <laughs> and the focus of, of this great minute and the way that it's constructed with Mr. Pakula and Willis and obviously Redford himself is like, we are going to hold you. We're going to be engaged on you. These are going to be single takes. You're going to give us everything you got for however long it's going to take to nail it. And so it's such a... You know, both of these scenes I, I relish to talk about because I feel like even when you get done talking about them, there's just so much more. So um, before we dive into that together and this minute, and I know that you're very prepared as you always are, what's your relationship with the paranoia thriller and with, um, and particularly with all the president's men? Well, you know, I grew up in the mid nineties. I was born in eighties, so around 14 I started really getting into maybe my first wave of fandom, movie fandom. And at the time, my parents were divorced. My mother had moved. My sister had gone to college. My brother had also gone to the service and come back. So here's me kind of by myself in a way. Not, not, not by myself, but as far as a movie fan compared to my friends who were more we're all into sports. We're all into movies, but for me, it was a little bit more intense. You know what I mean? Yes. And so at 14, 15, I'm going to the VHS store. I'm grabbing anything I can. I'm going to visit my mom in Fargo where I live now. At the time I lived in small town, Minnesota, about a half hour away. And so it was five for five for five. It was illegal R rated movie rentals. And when I, in the early nineties, in terms of, in terms of psychological thrillers, and this might not be a traditional psychological thriller, but there's a movie called Juice by Ernest <laughs> Dickerson. <laughs> yeah. and it was starring Tupac before. I think I, I was going to say, does that have Tupac in it? Yeah, I, I'm vaguely familiar because I was right in that and, independent Hollywood, you know, I was in the quagmire. Yeah, and it just got me. It wasn't, it's not, um, you know, it's an action movie slash drama slash thriller. But it really, I just, it was something I hadn't experienced before as a white kid from small town, Minnesota. And that was 91, 92. Before I knew about Tupac as a musician, let's say by the mid nineties is when I got more intense with uh, renting movies. And I saw seven for the first time, which was maybe 90, 95. Yeah. Um, later on in college spy game with Redford, and Brad Pitt, I was probably 21 then, but as far as all the president's men, I can't remember, to be honest, the first time I saw it, I want to say I was 15 to 18, but I remember not quite being sure what was going on. A totally relatable experience for a 15 to 18 year old of like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, you know, a hundred percent sure what's going on with this. And I went on to study history and communication. So, you know, 20, 25 <laughs> years later, it's, it's right up my alley. And there's still, now I can, like yourself, I now I can look through each minute and find something. And, um, 
when I look at it now as a 40 year old in 2020, I just see I'm stunned by it's like the absence of information and all this looming power. Of course there's Nixon and the movie revolves around Nixon, but it's these other threats that are right there. And, and compared to 2020 culture with Trump, you know, Trump is, he's obviously the, uh, a couple of times people on the show refer to him as Nixon squared, which I enjoy as a <laughs> strange mathematical and, uh, <laughs> uh, phrasing of that. Nixon squared. Yeah. But I think in, with Trump, you know, now it's uh, like he's blatantly trolling, you know, you go back to Watergate and, there's Nixon, but then there's all these other people and Hoffman and or, uh, Bernstein and Woodward. You know, just, what I like about how the movie begins is that you don't see those two together for a few minutes. So correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, it's they about, don't have their. It's about ten minutes. About ten minutes. They don't. Yeah. They're not really interacting with one another. Yeah. And I think that's what turned me off as a teenager. I wasn't quite. I didn't get the big movie star moments. You know, think of it like this. You know. Let's say we're in. A, let's say I'm a 15 year old, and you're inviting me onto your podcast. You, I'm your cousin Quinn, you know. And you're, uh, I'm a big movie fan. How am I going? How am I going to? This is going to come up in the minute discussion later, but I'll bring it up now. You know, as a 15 year old, I would just look for the movie stars, Redford, Hoffman, things I could identify with. And now there are just so many little details, minute to minute. And uh, yeah, let's get into it. All right, well, let's do this thing. Uh, we are going to watch the 51st minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. For folks who have followed this show along, I haven't done this sort of like disclaimer message um, as much, but I'll just do it again. Basically, every single version of All the President's Men should be the same. So if you're watching this on VOD or Blu-ray, or I believe there's some like uh, some folks you can get like a special Warner archive access so you can watch it and it's like basically the untampered with credits. The only difference between the theatrical cut and the Blu-ray, what I understand, is the Warner logo. So, for example, you know, uh, we talk about on this show, I think, way too much because of their intersecting qualities. But, um, you know, in Zodiac, Fincher, you know, made the point just like Ben Affleck did with Argo and, and, and other things to have the 70s logo. So if you're watching in a very, very... If you have a reel-to-reel and you're screening this for yourself in your house, you, the only difference technically should be that. So, right, if you go to 50 minutes on the dial, if you watch that now with QV and I, we're going to watch this minute together, this great sort of bit of journalistic agony and uh, relationship building together. And uh, we're going to come back and talk about it. Could I please speak to Mr. Clark McGregor? One moment, I'll come Thank you. Thank you. Yes? Mr. McGregor. Yes? This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Hello? Yes? Uh, this is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. 
I just spoke to a Mr. Kenneth Dahlberg, who says that he is Midwest Finance. Yeah, I know Ken Dahlberg. Well, I can't seem to get an explanation on why a check for $25,000 made out to Mr. Dahlberg that he apparently sent to the committee to re-elect the president would end up in the bank account of a Watergate burglar. I don't know. Uh, I don't know why a $25,000 check from Mr. Ken Dahlberg uh, has, uh, has gone into a bank account of a Watergate burglar. What a great question. What a great framing of a question. It is like loaded like a weapon. Great little minute. And notice, notice how how Redford speaks as Woodward. You notice that outspeak in his tone. Yes. What's the question he, he says to him? I, I'm from the Washington Post. Like I'm Ron Burgundy. You know, he's <laughs> not quite. He's not quite uh, authoritative with his his phone call, or you know, the traditional uh, newsroom the newsroom journalist. You know, tell me what you know. You know, he's he's not quite sure. The second time around, he's a little more comfortable asking the question, but um, I think that you know that speaks to to Goldsman's script and and perhaps working with Redford. And maybe I don't know how that turned out when they're actually filming, but it's a nice little nugget for me as to how how Redford uh, reacts to his his uh, that phone call. It's it's really good because the run up to the question, you don't know if it's going to be as good as it is. Like you said, there's a hesitation in his voice. He's sort of, he's like, oh, you know, this is Bob Woodward from the Washington Post. It's kind of like very rote and it's not confident. But when he gets McGregor on the phone, it's this beautiful, like, I don't know. I want to use the word languid, like the way that he delivers. It's like, can you explain to me? It's the impossible to not answer question. It's like, you know, Mr. Dobber. Yes, I do. Can you explain to me? I'm going to give you every out here, basically. Can you explain to me how the $25,000 from Mr. Dolberg got into the bank account of a Watergate burglar? And so then that person has to lie or essentially essentially perjure themselves um, on the phone <laughs> to him. But but I just love – I this minute particularly QV, which is why I was so excited to talk to you about it is I love silence when you can, and, and people's and particularly great actors ability to convey complex emotions and, and desires in just, you know, he's staring at an inanimate object. He's staring at a telephone. There's a humdrum of an office and he's taking this emotional run up to like, okay, I've got to I've got to make this call and I've got to skewer someone with this information. Like I have to I have to get this down. I have to get someone on the record about this. And I think what leads up to and and what the sort of arc of this whole conversation is is that really you know, that that the formulation of that question to like get that to to make McGregor in that moment be culpable for his answer is I think it's just such a beautiful it's like like you said it's a beautiful turn of phrase with the script it's a beautiful use of Redford as an actor it's it's a really it's it's terrific. What I love, what I love now, you know, twenty five years ago I would have looked and saw the close up on Redford I would have saw his wedding his wedding ring like oh there's a movie star the character's married <laughs> he he's not quite sure what he's doing you know, earlier in the film you know he doesn't even know who. Uh, I can't remember the character, but he doesn't know who, like, one of Nixon's who's main Char guys who's, is. He doesn't know who Charles Coulson is, the special advisor to the president. <laughs> no, he doesn't know who Charles Coulson is. 
it's what's so beautiful to me about this shot visually is that there the biggest statement I would argue is that I shouldn't say the biggest statement, but what really is pointing about this shot is that the way Willis slowly zooms in into Redford's psyche as Woodward. This goes back to two minutes before when the scene starts. You know, there's the wide shot. And this the re- recurring theme in the film where the foreground, background. It goes to the, to the final shot, which is probably my favorite shot of the film with mm. uh, Nixon on the small left and then Bernstein, Woodward, TV in the way, columns in the middle. Like To me, that's just like visual symmetry. Like I love that stuff. Yes. When I look at this, this minute, you know, just the frame compress. I mean, you can, you can interpret, interpret this a variety of ways, depending on your, how you approach the film. You know, you you can see Redford, the movie star, you can see what he's bringing visually, his mannerisms, you know, to me, like Redford, the character, Woodward reminds me of my father. Like I can't quite gauge what he's thinking when I talk to him. He's already (laughs) thinking about, he's already thinking about the next question. He's not necessarily listening to everything that I'm saying, but he's taking notes, you know, and, <laughs> but on the, on the other side of the screen, you know, there's all this other stuff going on behind Woodward's back. And, um, but visually, you know, there's these columns, there's but, the, but you just brought up, a great, you brought up a great point. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to say that one thing that Gordon Willis hates and is on the record hating is zooming in mid scene. He hates it. Really? He, I didn't know that. He's not a fan of it at all. At all. And so when he's doing it, he's usually doing it in collaboration or because the, the filmmaker that he's making it with is seeing the scene like that. So this glacial zoom, because in his mind, it is a distracting thing. It's something that can distract from what, you know, the, the zoom is like taking is a way to take you out of it. So what I love about this scene is that it is a glacial, it is not only just a really subtle and glacial zoom and reframing, it is also the body language of Redford sitting back in the chair, keeping the pace. And then when he moves in and leans forward and like we're talking together, so (laughs) Cupid can see what I'm doing. Um, uh, like, but he's like leans in when he leans in and closes the distance between us and, uh, you know, uh, Woodward and us and, you know, or the audience as he's, he's sort of going closer to that fourth wall. There is then that very, very minor adjustment that brings you into that closeness. And so it's, it's one of those rare scenes of the movie where a zoom happens mid frame because everything is orchestrated to perfection. Um, and usually, like you said, the symmetry of the scenes are so important, but this scene is just that very calculated thing that very, you know, there is a personality and there is the, the walls are closing in and this is such a critical moment and the focus on Woodward becomes paramount. It's like the movie puts blinkers on just for a second and says, Hey, you really need to be paying attention right now. Exactly. And you might not notice it the first time, you no. know, this is why no. rewatches. Are- <laughs> yeah. I was going to say re- rewatches so are so important. You never like it's <laughs> imperceptible the first, at least few times. I think you go, you go back two minutes. There's this complete wide shot Yeah, and it's just Redford. And then all of a sudden, like it's just his face 
And he's in my minute, he says his last line is, but you, you were the head of the committee, sir. And <laughs> spilling over into the next minute, what does he <laughs> say? You know, sir, we don't have a relationship. And here's this close up on him. He's seconds earlier. He's not quite, he's a little hesitant, but within. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this short amount of time, you know, he's 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 connected the, the dots. And what I, what I like about Woodward or Redford's portrayal of Woodward is that he's not as showy as as Hoffman's Bernstein. You know, Hoffman's kind of gliding around the newsroom and uh, kind of knowing that people are looking at him, and he's, <laughs> he's got he's got this, his hair doing his really rather tight jeans and just kind of, I mean, it was the seventies. I know I get it, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess Woodward reminds me of someone kind of from my neck of the woods where it's, they're not, we're not always easy to read. You know, he's maybe as evidenced earlier in the film, he's not exactly, you know, he's not up to speed with who everyone is, all the main players, but, He's he's figuring it out, you know, and uh, yeah, he's hungry. He's not. He's he's he's, he's hungry. He's, he's hungry. He's hungry, and I think that that's a good. That's an observation that you know you can tell that kind of that true Midwest ethos of like not easy to read, not hyper emotional, but I think it's also a huge bit of. I don't know how to describe it sometimes, like or how to articulate it often, but it's like a huge gutsy thing for Redford to kind of like when you really know what your talent is and to have a filmmaker really groom that talent for you, like in Willis and, and, and then obviously Pecula. Um Because he can't, you know, he can't, sorry he can't. Oh, sorry, go, go, go. I was just, I, Recently, yeah, Jason Bailey on from Crooked Marquee, and he made a good observation about Redford just um, think, you know, thinking, thinking Redford. And mm. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, but I, I was just, this uh, is a great moment. Yeah, this is thinking Redford, but it's also, you know, I think that that's his whole strength. It's like, how do I show that I can hold my own? If I'm this classic movie matinee idol, beautiful man, how can I hold my own in a world of Dustin Hoffman's and Gene Hackman's and and Al Pacino's and Robert De Niro's? And how he holds his own is inversion. Like, it's just stillness and thinking. And he so trusts Pacula here to just take, like... This scene is just all about how I can stare at a phone and think things or, you know, you know, conjure up questions that may or may not be great. And I, yeah, like, you know, Jason was spot on with it. And I think you're spot on with it. I just love your Midwestern actual experience sort of shining through of like these guys and their generations and the generations who are above them. They're, they're not guys who are easy to read. Um, and so in that way, so much of Woodward is that sort of Midwestern throwback, that kind of cowboy energy. Um, but he comes in here and, and it's 
despite the lack of experience, it's the directness that we we crave from him and, and being able to be direct but cordial. And uh, he's very good at extracting information, I think, with those two elements. But it's it's uh, it's fun how you say he reminds you of your dad. I don't know what this guy is oh, always yeah. thinking. And there's even something about the pencil that he's holding because for years, my father would wear wear a pencil in his ear. He's a contractor. He builds homes. And that was just his thing. Like, people would know that my dad wore a pencil in his ear. Here, Redford is holding the pencil. He, He's careful with how what he's saying. He's not quite sure how he's saying it. And for me, that's just... And the character is... Or Woodward is from Kansas, right? I believe that's where he's from. So it's, it's total Midwestern. As I watch this as a native uh, Minnesotan, you know, that's, that's my observation <laughs> on... With, uh, with Bernstein, I'm not sure... Do you know where Bernstein grew up? Uh... Is he a East Coast guy or... Yeah, he's 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 East Coast. He's been working in newsroom since he was sixteen. I think he's Washington through and through, like where he's from. And yeah, obviously, he, and obviously, Hoffman is a quintessentially sort of East Coast guy. I'm yeah, just, Hoffman's got a little more a little more uh, flavor with how he moves around the newsroom. And yeah, I I love the scene earlier where he he, he notices Redford's copy, Woodward's copy, and he he grabs it and, and he fixes it. I'm not. I can't quite tell if he knows that Woodward is watching him. He does it. He takes and the bills to the great uh, Woodward line. You know, it's not. Uh, you know, it's not what how you did. You say it. I don't. It's, it's not what you did. It's how uh, you did it. Yeah. So what? What do you think as as an Australian? Like, what's your interpretation of these characters? Like, at least in these first uh, fifty minutes, and especially this particular scene. My thought of both of them is that they're sort of incomplete without one another. Um, and it's less about, I think some people talk about it in terms of like, oh, they needed each other to learn, but it's like when you work really closely with people that you admire and they have qualities that you wish you had, you kind of steal them, not steal them in a bad way. You kind of absorb them. You're like, oh, that's really good. Right. Like that's really good how that person does that. I like that. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and see if I can put that into my arsenal. And so I think that what is what's starting to happen and this is like the real gestation of it in this movie is these guys have started to be around each other enough that some of those qualities like Woodward's earlier qualities are all about very casually deliberately asking nice questions and sort of extracting information slowly, but he doesn't ever really up to this point in the film, go for the jugular. And what I love here is we now start to see Woodward go for the jugular, whereas we kind of expect Carl to completely blunder in and go for the jugular without any finesse. It's cool here to watch that. And so that's what I start seeing in these two. So Bernstein, the real Carl Bernstein, born and raised in Washington, D.C., University of Maryland, 16 years of age working in the Washington Post newsroom. Like he is as East Coast as they get. And, 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 and in, Deep inside that, you know, that that whole um, experience. But I, I love here, Woodward is, you know, he's the glamorized Hollywood version of the real Bob Woodward. But it's like this big, beautiful, strapping throwback of a guy comes in, a little bit out of place, um, uh, much more polite and cordial. But, yeah, I think that, I, I, and, and he needs to learn that 
to be more incisive and direct. And I so, so I think both of these guys start to, this is the kind of beginnings and this is what's so great. It's like the, the movie sort of saute of these two characters and personalities that start going, look, I'm never going to be you and you're never going to be me, but sometimes I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go, that's good. You know, and I, it, I've worked with many writers or you work with people that you, you know, different workplaces. And if, even if it's, even if it's just someone, you know, you work in a factory and the way they drive a forklift, you're like, man, he does that smart. Like he goes that way. He puts the, you know, he puts the prongs up here because it's faster for him to get the forklift. You know, the, you're like, there's just these little touches of effortlessness and things that people do better. And so that's what I love about, I love about this minute because it's so him, but it's also him starting to grow out of that green guy who had no clue Charles Colson was. And it's the guy who's starting to, you know, this is him becoming self-aware and really honing his craft of like, I'm going to ask really incisive and direct questions that are really hard to get out of because this is how the story breaks. And I think in my experiences as a Midwesterner, sometimes all it takes to really connect with someone from a different, uh, for example, I lived in Hollywood when I was in my twenties and there was this, I'm from Fargo. So people (laughs) automatically think of the movie Fargo, which I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't seen when I moved there. (laughs) Um, believe it or not, but sometimes, you know, people just want to know that, that you're going to stand up for yourself and that here's what I know, or at least I'm trying yeah, I'm doing my I'm doing my best here, and we're what we're just getting there after a rough after after figuring things out. And I like overall, I like the tone for all the presidents' men. Where there's nothing like you don't have the confident guy chewing on gum or eating snacks to convey that he's the confident guy. Nah. Um, well, Hoffman, you know, he's there's a little flamboyance, but it's not distracting. You know, he's, he's just the guy that's been around the block. He can pick up on that. He, he's not a total hey, ass when he, he comforts smokes. When he, that's about his, his, his nervous tick is smoking <laughs> yeah. a thousand cigarettes a day. You know, I think he's just trying to figure things out in his, in yeah. his own way, trying to get up the ladder and, and, but it's also overcoming cynicism, right? That's the major difference is like, we can come yeah. pretty fresh and you know, that's Carl's biggest thing is he's got to overcome the cynicism. Imagine, and I, and I find this hard to imagine myself. Imagine, you know, you and I, um, uh, passionate film fans, you know, worked in adjacent to this industry and especially you running a publication as, as you do. The thing that I think about all the time is like, and I, and I and I crave talking to the journalists that I've talked to on this show about it. It's like, and my best friend particularly, like she was a prodigious journalist, went into a newsroom at 16 as well. And, you know, she was on the crime beat within a year. And you're like, imagine being 16, 17, going to crime scenes all the day, like being on police beat. Like it's, it when by the time you hit 30s and 35 and 40, you're like, you've seen some shit. And so I think that, even though he's sort of in his twenties here um, at Bernstein, the, the character, um, he's he's definitely seen some stuff. He's definitely been around the block, and and so I, I think that that's where he can he can stop immediately seeing conspiratorial things in every single person. He's got to look, try and find some goodness in the people that are going to give him the that are going to give him the information. I think that that's what he absorbs from 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 working with Woodward. Or the Woodward that is portrayed yeah. in this movie. Yeah, I think that time, you know, early seventies. Now, I mean, I do everything home now, online, and I've never been in the newsroom. I 
growing up, I always thought about that, especially watching this movie, watching Zodiac, like, <laughs> and just really get into the heart of the story. But my reality is that this is what I do now. I work from home. And I think at heart, I'm not, I often get frustrated um, just from day to just like, like everyone else, just trying to get by and do your thing. But, but I'm really an optimist. I just, I just tried to, I think I got this from my, my parents, you know, just to think about the bigger picture, which I think this movie is all about. Like what's really, what's really, or at least on one level, like what's really going on. Yes. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, there's Nixon, but it's also, you know, the final deep throw reveal that Jason just spoke about, or maybe that was the first deep throw scene, but the final deep throw reveal is what, you know, it's FBI, you know, there's, it's everyone, you know, that's the, and in the end, you know, the movie, the movie comes to this beautiful place where they get the job done. They're working together and history plays out, but there's still, there's still that looming threat. And And that's what I grapple with. I agree. That's what I grapple with today. Just, just trying to, to work my, trying to figure out how to navigate through everything and what my insecurities about what I, what I haven't done, but still knowing what I can do. And then I'm at least trying like Woodward and, and like Bernstein too, you know, they're all, everyone's got their different story. Um, I'm here in Fargo. You're, you're in Australia, but we're, we're working together on this. And, uh, that's, that's what I, you know, from minute one, there's just, it's, um, I can't remember who on your podcast spoke about this, but about it being a comfort film, you know, there's so many different layers to approach this, the horror, the horror of not knowing like what the hell is going on and what can happen. <laughs> but then also knowing that you're within this group and you're within these, a community and some, you know, a lot of people just want to be recognized as being part of a group, which is what Woodstein, which is what Woodward and Bernstein have, you know? I think that that's the, like, that's that great, community that these guys find in this newsroom. That's one of the things that I crave when you talk about the comfort. Like, um, you know, as much of, uh, I, I don't think there's more alluring a thought for me right now is the prospect of, you know, imagining all the great people that we we know and we talk to and that you interact with on uh, on Vague Visages or, and that I work with at, at different publications, just imagining us all getting to work in a newsroom together. <laughs> I, just, I just imagine just hammering away on a typewriter, you know, having a cigarette. Like I just like, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be so good if just like there were little partitions and all of us were just oh, like man. just grinding together in like a big space like it would be, su- it would be such a different life, uh, you know, and especially now in, in isolation as we're recording this and in quarantine to a large extent and things are starting to open back up. But, you know, the very concept of having a whole bunch of people around it and you're all working together or people you can bounce ideas off of that make you better. Like I just, you know, that that's, I think that's where the comfort comes in, especially right now. And I think that's what the film, highlight- another thing the film highlights is that the sense of uh, professionalism yeah. where um, uh, these, I think to your point, you doing what you do in Australia, myself here in Fargo, whoever you are working from home, you learn how to adapt and see what you need to do 
And then just like you said, just imagine if we all came to be in the same oh. place. I mean, sure. There'd be a few parties. There's be a few, uh, happy, <laughs> <laughs> few happy hours gone wrong, maybe, but we'd all have this. Um, and I think that's where we're all headed to be honest, is that with, you know, my new subscription service, ultimately that's what I want to do is have a staff and have a, com- a, commu- a community where, at least at some point in the physical, we're all physically in one spot. You know, some people would work remotely, but, um, but I think what we're all doing now is especially now, especially now through COVID-19 learning what, learning more about yourself, learning more about your process. I mean, you're working harder than ever. I'm sure I've been doing the same routine pretty much just grinding, you know? Yeah. And once you, and once you, I was going to say, and once you do get that one, once you get that break, whether it's you moving, or maybe you want to stay in Australia, maybe you want to move, <laughs> but whatever it is, um, well, well, let's stop there. What do you want to do moving forward? Uh, that's a that's a question I haven't been asked on this show. Oh, look, I, I don't know, I don't know about moving. I don't, I don't know about moving. Moving scares moving scares me out of Australia or out of New Zealand right now. The prospect of moving to the well, states scares, yeah, scares scares me. One, F- two, family. So I and I can tell you on this show because it'll be recorded. It's recorded after yesterday. I actually went and got a COVID nineteen test. Like I went and got one because I was feeling a little bit run down, as you can imagine. Um, I have been working harder than ever on a couple of these upcoming projects. And I was like, oh, I should do the due diligence. In Oz, they're like, if you feel sick, you should just go get tested to make sure that you don't have it. So I went and got the test. Um, Fortunately, negative. Hilarious, which is excellent. Um, um, Good news. Uh, very, very good news. Got a text message on the on the registration service. Sir, your results are negative. Well done. I'm like, yes. I went and hugged my kids. Uh, I went and hugged my kids. I went and hugged my wife. It was exciting um, because you have to isolate after your test just in case you have it. And, um, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I definitely, when I imagine like, you know, a, a scenario of what my favorite thing in the world could possibly be, I think about this scenario. I think about like, wouldn't it be amazing to work with the great people that you love working with to produce content and art and, 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 and things for people in a, in such a way that it was consumable and people wanted to do it. Um, and, and also I still fantasize about like, it's not just like having the, you know, working from home aspect and doing that sort of stuff. I still fantasize about the prospect of having a, a team like of working with a team of people doing this because I just know what it's like when you work on it, you know, whether it's a sporting team or whether it's anything, it's like if you work with really great people, they just push you. And I think every single person in the whole world has probably watched the last dance to this point. You think all those players got good because they played with each other or because they played with Jordan, you know, like I think right. sometimes you need someone to push. Sometimes, yeah, you need all sorts. And so I, I fantasize about this idea of being like, you know, imagine the murderer's row lineup you could have of some of the great film writers that you and I have both worked with and being like, wow, we've just got this amazing murderer's row of people that are all around us and you get to watch them work and you get to shoot the breeze with them and you're like, shit, that's a really good, you know, way of thinking about something. I, I had a problem in what I was working on, but if I apply that lens to it, maybe it'll come to life. And it's just, you know, you, you hear about it with comedians talking about it, um, all those sorts of things. Comedians talking about, uh, you know, uh, how like they go up at a comedy store, they, they, they do a bit, then one of their colleagues will help them tag it up and, you know, laugh at it if it's great or say, oh, you, oh, I love this bit. And there's just those sorts of things that you like, you imagine in those teams 
that could be amazing. You're like, whoa, that could be the dream. That that that's well, sorry, not could be the dream. That is the dream. But it's just like what that looks like now in post COVID time is is different. But it's always something I've always thought about. It's you know, it's and envious of places like the Ringer and things like that uh, for their for their amazing cohort of great people that work together and do podcasts and write about things that are cool and and those sorts of things. They seem to have sort of nailed it. Um, but yeah, I guess that you know, talking uh, about a dream, it would be like that, like having a space, fun content but just great people pushing each other to write really great stuff and produce really great stuff yeah i brought up traveling because i've had the best times of my life traveling and it's been a few years um yeah i've been since 2012 since i've been here in fargo i haven't really gone anywhere to be honest i've been to see family and in vegas and phoenix and went to california once but when i was younger like my life changed when i went took a, a, a Euro trip or when I went, took another trip to Italy. I lived, meanwhile, I was living in Hollywood, California, just blocks from where the ringer is now. I'm like, now I'm, it would just be ideal to live blocks from like a place like the ringer or whoever, yeah. just to be in closer proximity to that opportunity. I can still, pitch from afar of course but yes. I, I, I do love traveling it's my dream to to take the website around the world and to meet all the different writers come down to Australia go you're welcome wherever you, you, you've got a tour guide if you ever come to Sydney yeah man I would, I would love that I would love that but, are we are we still talking? <laughs> I think this is oh, a good place. I, I, I think this is a good place to wrap up because I think that right now um, we can plan we can plan your next trip to Sydney. But QV, look, I I, I cherish talking to you because uh, you at least ask questions sometimes that I haven't been uh, able to confess myself, and that's part of every great podcast. And I love uh, I love being able to imagine that that ethos of a Midwestern guy who has a pencil in his ear. That's such a, you know, I think, you know, different people in his life in Oz and I've got friends who are like that. I've got myself who's like that. Sometimes I wear a pencil in my ear when I'm pottering around the house doing things and, and people are like, why do you got that there? And I'm just like, just in case it's all right. Just in case I have an idea or I think of something, I need to scribble it down. Um, so I've loved having you to chat about this and, uh, and just look, thank you so much. I, I might let you, say better than anyone else um, everything about Vague Visages and everything that's going on there because uh, you know it, it's 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 all happening so um, do you want to give a shout out to the folks who are listening about everything that's happening with Vague Visages uh, going forward yeah well I just have three monthly subscription plans I have a monthly at two ninety nine per month um, I have a quarterly plan $2 a month which is five ninety nine every three months and I have a yearly plan at eleven eleven ninety nine. US per month, which is $1 a month. So whatever you can do, just I urge you to check out the site, see what you're doing. And um, if you like what you read, like what you see, hopefully you can support us. And regardless, uh, it's, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast. And I appreciate everyone paying attention to my little film site from Fargo. It means a lot. So <laughs> thank you, Blake. Thank you, man. Thank you, too. Thank you, thank you for being a part of the show. Um, thank everyone for listening, and uh, and and I just want to say a huge thank you to again uh, for your time. Thank you, sir. Take care. That was the incredible and lovely QV Haug, which you can find on Twitter at, at QV H O U G H, um, and you can go to his great site 
Vague Visages or Vague Visages, which is V-A-G-U-E-V-I-S-A-G-E-S dot com. And it is now a subscription service, but it literally has an incredible array of film writing, of music writing, uh, long and thoughtful essays, terrific writers um, outside of myself um, that you should check out. So uh, please do that. If you want to support One Heat Meter Productions, the very best thing that you can do right from the start is share and like and tell people about the show. If you're having a good time listening, please share and share a like on any of your socials. We'd really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, if you know anyone that is, you know, someone who's keen to listen or someone that you think you'll like of the show, send them a text with a link. Uh, we're available on basically every single podcast service. Oneheatminute.com is where you can find us. You can find everything about the show. And uh, at ATPM pod on twitter we'll catch you on another episode of all the president's minutes very soon when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply